you're listening to the North Richland Hills Baptist Church Sermon Audio Podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, go to nrhbc.org. In a Peanuts cartoon, Lucy demanded that Linus change the television channel, threatening him with her fist if he did not do so. So Linus says, what gives you the right to tell me what to do and to take over? Lucy said, these five fingers right now, individually, they're nothing. But when I curl them together like this, they become a mighty force that is terrible to behold. Which channel do you want, Lana said. <laughs> Turning away, he looked at his fingers and said, why can't you guys get organized like that? You know, there's strength in unity. And Ecclesiastes 4.12 says, a cord of three strands is not easily broken. We were each created in the image of God, and yet no two of us are alike. He gifted each of us according to the purposes He has for each and every one of us. And even though each of us are different, we together make up the body of Christ. We who know Him are all part of that body. You know, I really like it, uh, the fact that our country is called the United States. And you may remember in the video, the narrator said, out of many, we could become one. And so it is with the body of Christ. We work together in unity, and by doing so, great things can be accomplished. Listen to these words in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 through 13. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. These last two Sundays, we studied spiritual gifts. And upon receiving Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, each of us have received at least one spiritual gift that helps us become part of the unifying body of Christ. You know, just two Wednesdays ago, our church, um, really there was an anniversary, 10 year anniversary of an event that really rocked the life of our church. On June the 23rd, 2011, we heard of the unexpected death of our pastor, Dr. Tommy Teague. And in the days that followed, the staff determined that there were two goals that we had in mind. Goal one was to love on and to take care of the Teague family. And we believe that we did that and did that well. But the other goal that we had was to maintain unity in the body. And because of the graciousness of Christ, that was done, and that was done well through Him. But having unity in the body or unity in the faith goes well beyond just getting along. Paul was actually speaking here of something far deeper than this type of unity. We go back to chapter 4 of Ephesians and look at the first six verses. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit 
in the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You know, the final outcome of humility, patience, gentleness, and bearing one another with love is being diligent in preserving the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In speaking of the unity of Spirit, Paul was referring here to that Spirit that binds us all together. And spiritual unity is created by the Holy Spirit and is maintained by the Holy Spirit as we exercise humility, patience, gentleness, and bearing one another with love. Jesus prayed earnestly in the upper room a prayer, and that prayer is found in John chapter 17. I'll start with verse 11 and skip down to verse 21. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Jesus' desire was not only that they be united as one, but his desire was that the world would know that we are united as one. You know, the world is watching us very closely. Not only are they watching, they are scrutinizing everything that believers do. You know, over the past couple of decades, social media has grown exponentially in its influence. According to digitalmarking.org, seven out of 10 Americans use social media to communicate, share information, and find content. Researchers said that worldwide, 3.96 billion people use social media every single day. That's a little over the world's entire population. On average, those who use social media spend two hours and 24 minutes a day on social media sites. In the United States, adults spend an average of 38 minutes a day on Facebook alone. And millennials spend around two hours and 30 minutes a day on social media. Now you're wondering, why do I bring this up? Well, you don't have to look at social media very long to realize that many people use social media to go on rants and share everything that's wrong with everything and everyone else. And seldom does it make things better? So am I suggesting that everyone get off of social media? No, not at all. Even though some of us may should back off and use some of that time to develop our relationship with the Lord. We have a hope 
And that hope is in Christ. Why not use your social media to share the hope that you have in Christ? I've been a trustee at Southwestern Seminary for about five years, and we've seen a tremendous change during that time for the good. And one of the greatest changes is this. There's been a change in culture. We are more known now for what we are for than what we are against. Now think about that for a minute. We are more known now what we're for than what we are against. We are for the gospel. That is our message. And let me suggest that you post things on social media that clearly show the love of Christ and how Christ is the only one who can enact positive change in the United States. I want to share something with you. Um, actually, I just want to read this to you. I want to get this right. This is uh, something that was tweeted out by Greg uh, Laurie. Uh, Greg Laurie is a pastor in California and he's leader of uh, Harvest America Crusades. And let me just read what it says. The answer to America's problems is spiritual, not political. I think Abraham Lincoln answered it well when he said, we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these things were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. President Lincoln was right. We, our country, in many ways have forgotten God. And it's even truer today than when he made this proclamation in 1863. We try to push God out of the courtroom. We try to push God out of the classroom. And for all practical purposes, many people are trying to push God out of our culture. Will good ever prevail over evil, or are we simply doomed for failure? The answer to America's problems is not political, it's spiritual. We need to turn back to God. Use social media to say positive things about the gospel like that. We are to walk in a manner worthy of his calling, and this is how we preserve the unity. The bond that preserves unity is peace. And we as a church, North Richland Hills Baptist Church, throughout this century at least, have experienced incredible unity and, per and peace. Obviously during that time there have been times where people have disagreed, but never to the level where it threatened the unity in the body. Now in this world there is one body of believers which is the church. And it is comprised of every person whoever has and ever will, will accept Jesus Christ as Savior. There is no division or difference within the body that is racial, geographical, ethnic, or denominational. There is no Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free. In Christ there is one body and its unity is the actual overall theme in the book of Ephesians which we're studying almost all year this year. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4, it states, There is one body and there is one spirit. That one spirit is the Holy Spirit who indwells every believer and is the unifying force in the body. Believers are individual temples of the Holy Spirit and are being fit together. Uh, these words out of um, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 21 and 22. 
in whom the whole structure being formed together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. As we have studied, we each have different gifts, we have different talents, we have different ministries, and we have different places of service, but we have one calling. And according to Ephesians 1-4, that calling is to be holy and blameless before the Lord and to become conformed to the image of Christ. Now, in our Ephesian passage, it says there is one Lord. Listen to these words over in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. There's one Lord. It also says that there is one faith. Now, here Paul is speaking about the body of doctrine. We form our belief from the whole of the Scripture. There's no contradiction in the Scripture, and the summation of its truths together make up our doctrine. There is one baptism, it says in that verse. And this water baptism was the New Testament church's means by which they publicly confess Jesus Christ as their Savior. And every time we have someone in the baptismal waters here, what we're saying is buried with Christ in baptism, bearing our sins, and raised to walk in newness of life. That was their testimony back then, and that is our testimony today. The New Testament church reveals in Ephesians 4, 6 that there is one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4, 13 speaks of obtaining unity of the faith. But once again, this is not referring to the act of belief or, dis or, or obedience, but to the body of Christian truth or Christian doctrine. And it's out of this, out of this that flows spiritual maturity and a loving testimony. Everything for which we aspire comes from the Scripture. The secret to unity in church is really probably not as complicated as some people make. Let me simplify it. Read the Word, have a healthy interpretation of what it says, and follow what it says. We as a local body of believers have a high view of Scripture. Listen to these statements which express that view. And I'm going to read this because I want you to hear every word of it, and then I'll explain it. This is our view of Scripture. The Bible was written by man, in, divinely inspired, and is God's revelation of himself to man. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all Scripture is totally true and trustworthy. It reveals the principles by which God judges us, and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. All Scripture is a testimony to Christ, who is himself the focus of divine revelation. Now, we are 
a Southern Baptist church, in case you didn't know. And what I just shared was the first section of the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. The Baptist Faith and Message 2000 is a document which explains what Southern Baptists believe on a variety of biblical topics. We use the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 as a tool to help explain our doctrine. And we do so because we believe that the explanation of the doctrine expressed in the Baptist Faith and Message is based and solely derived from Scripture. So if someone asks you what you believe, you go straight to the Bible. You form your own beliefs on the Scripture. And if you want a thorough explanation of doctrine, use this Bible, and then you can also use the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 like a commentary. It is not divinely inspired, but it is our interpretation of that which is. And it helps it come, uh, explain what's contained there. Now, if you're interested in getting a copy of it, we have a few copies in the ministry gallery. And on the back of your worship guide, it shows how you can get that electronically. But always remember, the buck stops here. The Bible, the Scripture. You know, Adrian Rogers once said, the Scriptures are shallow enough for a small child to come and drink without fear of drowning, but yet deep enough for theologians to swim in without ever reaching the bottom. There are several examples of dis disunity of the church found in the New Testament. There's disunity in the church in Corinth, and it stemmed from doctrinal ignorance and spiritual immaturity. And unity in the body or unity of the faith can be obtained when people are properly taught and faithfully do the work of service. This is why I love Bible fellowship groups so very much. We not only get good teaching and doctrine in the worship services, but we get that in the Bible fellowship groups. But in small groups, we're able to take that and apply it to everyday life and go do works of service out in our community. If you're not part of a Bible fellowship group, you need to start today. We have a commonly believed truth, and that being salvation through Christ and Christ alone. And by sharing that commonly believed truth, we can obtain a oneness in our fellowship. This is all built on Scripture and all it contains. Now remember, we cannot pick and choose parts of the Scripture we want to use and parts that we don't want to use. Unity in the church is achieved through doctrinal integrity. Now, our video also stated that the United States began with the idea that our beliefs should not be dictated. And I'm so grateful that we're part of a nation that was built on Christian principles. We have a freedom in this country to choose who we worship and how we worship. But this is not a new idea. From the beginning of time, God gave man the ability of choosing who he will serve and who he will not serve. And we enjoy that freedom in the United States. And I believe that our freedom that we enjoy is here partially because our forefathers based the founding of our country on biblical principles. When our forefathers established our government, they walked a tightrope in measuring a great deal of liberty for creative expression, 
that was consistent with man's dignity while they incorporated a system of checks and balances to keep the sinful nature of an individual or group in check. You know, God holds rulers and governments accountable just like he does individual men. Amos lists many kings uh, here in the scripture that would be judged by God for their poor choices. And in Psalm chapter 2, God gives a firm warning to all kings and governments who choose to ignore God's right to judge kings and governments. But on the other hand, God gives us a great picture of what a king and government should be. And that is found in Psalm chapter 72. It should serve as a model, in my opinion, to governments everywhere as to their functions and their responsibilities. Let me, let's just take a quick look at Psalm chapter 72. I'm going to share just a few verses with you and give a brief comment. Psalm 72 verses 1 and 2. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. What is it saying? The king and the government must be just. Verse 4, may he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. The king or the government should provide for the defense of the lowly and defend against oppressors. Verse 7, in his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. The king or the government should create economies of prosperity. Verses 12 through 14, for he delivers the needy when he calls the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence he redeems their life and precious is their blood in, and his sight. And the king and the government should take pity on those and rescue the needy and the helpless. And last of all, verses 18 and 19. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The king or the government should reflect the character of our creator, God. What was the intent of the forefathers of our nation when they left their home? They crossed a wide troublesome sea. They faced opposition to the new people that they found and from actually from people back home as well. What was the purpose of them risking their lives to take a stand to birth a new nation? Well, I believe that we can find the answer to this by what we've discovered in Psalm chapter 72 and compare it with the preamble of our Constitution. The similarities are striking. Form a more perfect union. Establish justice. Ensure domestic tranquility. Provide for the common defense. Promote the general welfare and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. They probably should have gone ahead and referenced Psalm chapter 72 as a basis for what they wrote. For all I know, that's what they did. I just don't know that for a fact. 
If I were to ever advise someone coming in to a high office such as president or something like that, of course I'll never have that opportunity, but if I were to advise someone coming in, if they asked the question, what should I do, I'd have a simple answer. Read Psalm chapter 72 and follow it. I do want to dispel one untruth, untruth that seems to be creeping into the textbooks and into the telling of our history and into the discussions in the media. That untruth is that the government was not founded on godly principles by godly men and godly women. When you view our history, one document at a time, one leader at a time, the evidence is indisputable that our country was, was established by godly men and godly women who not only quoted scripture but applied it to their everyday life. Let me give you just one example. Roger Sherman. He was a signer of the Declaration of the Independence and also a signer of the Constitution. This is a quote. I believe that there is only one living and true God existing in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. That the scriptures of the Old and New Testament are a revelation from God. That God did send his Son to become man, to die in the room instead of sinners. In other words, in our place and thus to lay the foundation for the offer of pardon and salvation to all mankind so as all may be saved who are willing to accept this gospel offer. Yes, we enjoy our freedom in the United States, but our ultimate freedom is somewhere else. Our ultimate freedom is in Christ. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Another result of following God's pattern for building His church is the attaining of the knowledge of the Son of God. Paul is discussing a knowledge that goes far beyond that of salvation. He's talking about a personal relationship with Christ. It's a deep knowledge that comes through prayer, through Bible study, through following what he says and developing that relationship with him. In speaking about our nation, our video also stated that we prayed for favor. That's how our, our country began. And it's through prayer that we obtain the unity in the body as we travel the road of spiritual maturity. After several years of obedience, in faithful apostleship, Paul could say the following, and I really rejoice in this. This is from Philippians chapter 3, starting with verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowledge, of knowing Jesus Christ as my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. 
Growing in deeper knowledge of the Son of God is not a one day, a one week, a one month, or one year job. It's a lifelong process. And it will not be complete until we see Christ face to face. In John chapter 10, verse 27, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. He wasn't just saying that he knows who they are. He was saying, I know them intimately, and that's how he wants to know each and every one of us. We see in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13, God's design for his church in spiritual maturity. A maturity to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. In Romans chapter 8, Paul expresses God's desire for us to be conformed to the image of God. God's desire for his church is for every one of us to come to be like his son. And he wants us to manifest the character and the qualities of Christ. But do know that we never arrive until we leave this earth and meet him. We, the church, are Christ's representatives to the world, and we are to reflect to the world through our lives what we see in Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to, the, to the, another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. As we grow in our walk with Christ, the process of sanctification through the Holy Spirit changes us more and more into His image. And even though we cannot fully attain the measure of stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, we should reach a degree of maturity that really pleases and glorifies the Lord. And the goal of Paul's ministry, if you really stop and think about it, the goal of Paul's ministry to believers was maturity. Why is being mature in faith and having a good grasp of Scripture so very important? We find this uh, in, in uh, chapter 4, verse 14. I want to read that verse uh, one more time. 4, 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carry about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. If we are properly equipped, there's nothing Satan can throw our way that can stop us. And in 1 Corinthians 3, 1, Paul addressed the people. And this is how he addressed them. He said, as infants in Christ. Many people in the church in Corinth were spiritual children who were in constant danger of yielding to false teachings and new religious fads or off-base interpretation of the Scripture. And this was mainly because they did not have a thorough knowledge of the Scripture. We need to remember that the Word of God is to your spirit like blood is to your body. Because they were not well anchored to the truth, they were suspect to counterfeit truth. And we do have Paul's writings in the Bible for a reason. We need to learn from some of the mistakes that the early church made. We were given ample warning. Satan's game plan really has not changed. And he's still attempting to infiltrate the church through false teaching, biblical ignorance, and the lack of allowing the Holy Spirit to synthesize our beliefs and our doctrine. In the video we saw earlier about the United States, 
last of all, talked about our inalienable rights. In case you didn't know, the word inalienable means cannot be taken away. Our forefathers made a very strong statement when he said the freedoms and rights could not be taken away. But let me tell you something. Let me tell you something else that cannot be taken away. According to Scripture, and this is locked in stone. This is taken from Romans chapter 8, starting with verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Your relationship with Christ is inalienable. It cannot be taken away. So today, as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ and we recognize the birthday of our nation, I'm grateful that in this country, we live in this country that was built on Christian principles. And if anybody tells you anything differently, they are trying to rewrite history. We all have enjoyed the freedom found in this country, but it pales in comparison to the freedom that we find in Christ. Thanks for listening to the North Richland Hills Baptist Church Sermon Audio Podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, go to nrhbc.org.